<laughs> I love it. <laughs> it is for the Vikings, all right. What else am I supposed to assume? I mean, I'm going to stop there because they haven't won the last couple. Stopping. <laughs> Exodus 23. You turn your Bibles there. Exodus chapter 23. As we continue. A couple weeks ago, we, were going, we learned about some laws concerning going to court. At first glance, one would think while reading through the passage that many of the verses might basically say the same thing. But we realized that upon closer observation, there are differences that separate each of the laws from, uh, from the other. Um, but if you would, follow along. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning. And uh, as you're turning there, I hope that uh, this last week that you really saw some opportunities for God to be at work. Last week we kind of went off script a little bit and talked about just trusting God, having faith. And uh, the verse that just all this week has been standing out to me is in Matthew 13 where it says he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It wasn't that he couldn't do the work. It wasn't that he didn't have the ability to. He says, listen, if you don't expect me to work, you won't be disappointed. Are we going to God trusting him to do what only he can do? Because I've found out in my life that there's a lot of things I can't control. I'd like to. I mean, I'm, it's just my nature. I want to control certain things, but I've just realized I can't. And so in those circumstances, you got to just give it to God and trust Him that He's going to do what's best. And even in the difficulties, even in the, the hard things that we would not choose. Anybody go through some of those things? Things that you wouldn't choose? I mean, nobody chooses cancer. Nobody chooses to have uh, a flat tire. Nobody chooses to have the water heater go out in their house. Nobody chooses to, you know, lose a job. You know, those are things that God didn't wake up in the morning, as I've said before, scratch his head and say, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, God is a sovereign God. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how to work in each of our lives in such a way that would bring glory back to himself and get our focus back on him, right? And he does these things for our good. We don't always look at it that way, but He does do it for our good, right? And so I hope this week that you've had an opportunity to see God do some of those things and, and to show Himself strong and so forth. Well, if you would follow along as I read verses 1 through 13 here in Exodus chapter 23. You must not spread a false report. Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. You must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. Do not testify in a lawsuit. And go along with a crowd to pervert justice. Do not show favoritism to a poor person in his lawsuit. If you come across the enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you send the donkey of someone who hates you, lying helpless under its load, and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help with it. You must not deny justice to a poor person among you in a lawsuit. Stay far away from a false accusation. Do not kill the innocent and the just because I will not justify the guilty. You must not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and corrupts the words of the righteous. You must not oppress a foreign resident. You yourselves know how it feels to be a foreigner because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So your land for six years and gather its produce, but during the seventh year you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated so that the poor among your people may eat from it, and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. 
Do your work for six days, but rest on the seventh day, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as the foreign residents, may be refreshed. Pay strict attention to everything I have said to you. You must not invoke the names of other gods. They must not be heard on your lips. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this opportunity once again to be here. And Lord, to look at these words that are found in the book of the covenant, Lord, and I pray that you might help us to... Lord, not only realize what the historical aspect of it is, Lord, and what was said, but Lord, how we might apply them to our hearts and our lives today in the culture that we live in. And I pray, God, that you would just speak to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are several things here that that get brought up, and a lot of it has to do with going to court. Uh, Secondly, showing love. Number three, helping the poor. And then number four, obeying God. And as we look at this, I want to first of all deal with this aspect of going to court. And we see, first of all, in the first three verses... Then in verses 6 through 8, so I want to give you several things that are found under this idea of going to court. The first one is to do not spread a false report. Do not spread a false report. The first law was given in Exodus 23 as a reiteration of the ninth commandment, which basically said what? Thou shalt not lie. So it was a continuation of that. You're not to bear false witness. Specifically, the law stated that they were not to spread a false report. Now, we all have an idea of what a false report might be. A false report is anything that is not true, something that is false. And I think uh, even though this was the book of the covenant and that Moses was using this book of the covenant to help govern and to guide the children of Israel, the bottom line is I don't think that idea has changed in the New Testament, has it? I don't think that God is still uh, uh, for lying. He's still against those things. So it's still practical for today. So we're not to spread a false report. And there are lots of ways that people do this. Uh, It's often done through lying. It's done through repeating something heard out of context. That never happens, right? Um, You can have a 20-minute speech that somebody said in the political arena, and somebody captured that 15 seconds that makes it all sound terrible. Uh, And it's done in everyday life. But repeating something in a false context, listening to what we want to hear and retelling only part of what is said. Uh, How about exaggerating? You know, a half-truth is a what? Whole lie. So the bottom line is it is done in a lot of ways. A false report can be done in a lot of different ways. But a false report is also speaking what is, according to Scripture, worthless or empty. Think about that just for a moment. A false report is something that in the Hebrew language is worthless or empty. So it's not necessarily just, quote-unquote, a lie. It can also be interpreted something that is worthless or empty and so when you think about this in the context of what moses was trying to teach his people through the book of the covenant part of what he was saying to them is what guard your words make sure that what you say is right make sure that what you say has context and content make sure that what you speak is true so it's not just the idea of telling a lie it's also not saying things that are empty and worthless. It could be gossip. But not only not spreading false reports, number two, do not be a malicious witness. We see this also in verse one. It says, Do not join the wicked to be a malicious wicked or witness. A malicious witness is someone who deliberately lies. Uh, they go into it knowing that they're gonna not tell the truth. They deliberately lie, though they know the truth. The context is that of being in a courtroom and one who gives a malicious report is trying to rescue one who is known to be guilty 
Maybe he's a friend, maybe he's a relative, maybe he's a loved one, but they don't want to see him have to deal with the result of, telling the, tell, or of what he's done, so they will maliciously, deliberately tell a lie to get that person off the hook. So, we're not to do that. In fact, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19, verses 16 through 18 says this, If a malicious witness testifies against someone accusing him of a crime, the two people in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and judges in authority at that time. And the judges are to make a careful investigation, and if a witness turns out to be a liar who has falsely accused his brother, he must do to him as he intended to do to his brother, and you must purge the evil from among you. I think if we knew the consequence of what we might do, we might think twice before we do it. They said, listen, whatever should have been done to the person who was guilty, if they lied, should be done to him. And so there was quite a consequence for telling a lie and once again being a malicious witness. In Psalm chapter 35, verse 11, it says, A malicious witness come forward. They question about things I do not know. So they, they are speaking out of their mouth the things that are not true. They don't even know the truth, but yet they try to speak. And in Psalm 27... In verse 12, it says, do not, give me or to, do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witness rise up against me, breathing violence. There is fear along, associated with not telling the truth. So he says, make sure that you're not being a malicious witness who lies deliberately, even though you know the truth. And then we see a third thing in verse 2 says, do not do evil. You must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. So, do not do evil. The key phrase is with the many. In other words, following the crowd is causing you to do evil. See what the problem with that is? You see, even in Moses' day, there is a problem. See, the very fact that he says, don't do it, presupposes the fact that someone is doing it, right? So he says, don't follow the crowd. What's wrong with following the crowd? Now, we all know the answer that is. Following a crowd can often get you in the wrong spot, in the wrong place, the wrong time. So you know what? Sometimes you're required to take a stand for what we know is right. Even though everyone else may be doing it, we're not to be doing it. So we're not to be the one who is following the crowd, or with some of your translations, with the many. Uh, Not only that, verse 2, we see, do not lie or pervert justice. In other words, and part of not following the crowd is the court of public opinion. Oftentimes, the court of a public opinion is wrong. So we're not to pervert the truth. It also says in verse 6, you must not deny justice to a poor person among you in his lawsuit. So how is justice perverted? By not exercising balance and truth. Sometimes, and you see there's something with a poor here, the next thing in verse 3. Do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. And then we see something else about that down a little bit further. Here's the idea here. We're not to give pity or show favoritism just because, quote, quote, because they're poor. See, a poor person doesn't get any special favoritism or excusal of what he has done just because he's poor. In fact, God's Word says very clearly that we are to, and you see this in the text here, don't show special favoritism, but at the same time make sure that he is rightly defended. So there ought to be a balance there. So, How is justice perverted here? By not exercising balance and truth. 
You see, one thing that happens oftentimes in our culture is that we have an opinion that comes up pretty quick. We hear something and immediately we form an opinion, don't we? I mean, we may not have all the facts, but that doesn't matter. We have an opinion. Don't mess with my opinion because my opinion is right. Why? Because that's what everyone says. Or that's what this group says. Or this group says. The bottom line is we're to make sure that we gather all the facts, gather all the information before we decide. So just as he says not to give special attention to the poor, we're not to avoid them either just because they are. And just because one of the parties is poor doesn't mean he's innocent. In fact, Leviticus 19.15 reiterates that. So what's the idea here? To be fair, Philip Graham, Philip Graham Ryken makes a statement, no bias toward the rich nor prejudice for the poor, but everyone should receive equal justice. And I think that's important in our culture that we live to make sure that justice is equal. However, oftentimes the wealthy, because of their resources, can get good lawyers. How many, how many of you remember a case with uh, O.J. Simpson? Remember that? I mean, I can remember going on, and I remember years after the situation was over. And it was all still in the news. It was still quite fresh in everyone's memories who lived in that time frame. And uh, I remember one of, the, one of the attorneys who stood up and said, it was a marvelous plan, referring to getting O.J. Simpson off the hook. It would have never happened had he not had money. That was what the attorney said. So the dream team, because of his money, was able to get him acquitted which you can later find out that his true character still came out, and that's why he is where he is today. But the bottom line is, we're to be fair and just. We see something else in the book of the covenant in verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Stay far away from false accusation. Do not kill the innocent and the just, because I will not justify the guilty. So he says, do not keep company with liars. People will not trust you or believe you if you do. Remember the old phrase, birds of a feather flock together? That's why it's important that we guard our testimony, that we guard our name. Not to the extent that we say, well, I can't associate with the unsaved world around me. But we ought to make sure that we're careful that we guard our testimony above all things. That we guard our name. God's Word tells us that good name is rather be chosen than great riches. We need to honor our name. Honor the fact that you are a believer, that you stand as Christ's representative in this world. So he says not, keep, not to keep company with liars, verse 7. Uh, also says do not kill the innocent, or the righteous, also verse 7. Um, do not kill the innocent, because I will not justify the guilty. So and then verse, verse 8, do not take bribes. You must not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and corrupts the words of the righteous. Where have we seen this recently? The bribes that go on in politics. The bribes that go on, I'm sure it's in every party. There are no exceptions. That's what I think. The bottom line is, this is a corrupt world that we live in. It's a sin-filled world. And why would not somebody want to get ahead if they could think that they could get away with getting ahead? How many people go into politics, not very wealthy, but come out very extremely wealthy? Well, yeah, you can vote for that bill and push that that uh, legislation and little pocket, little bit of pocket money out of the table. I'm sure it happens every day. So, do not take a bribe. Why? Because it muddies the mind. It makes unclear who you, whose you are. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17. 
For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords is great and mighty, an awesome God showing no partiality and taking no bribe. The example that we're to follow is God's. So we're to not take bribes. And then it goes on back in our text there, uh, showing love. Going on here, how about our love in the world that we live in? I think oftentimes it's missing. Verse 4, let me just reiterate a couple of verses here. Verse 4 and 5, and then verse 9. Verse 4 says, If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, lying, helpless, under its load, and you, and you, won't, or, and you want to refrain from helping it, <laughs> you must help it. Verse 9, you must not oppress a foreign resident. You yourselves know how it feels to be a foreigner because you were in the foreigners in the land of Egypt. What's he saying here? Show love. Well, if I don't want to, do it anyway. What if I don't feel like it? Change your attitude. Help those that need it. Um, Pastor Mike in class this morning was showing a verse. And it says we're to love others so that... The word so, I circled it this morning in the, in the lesson. So that others may see a picture of Christ. That's what I wrote in the note of it. Why do we do what we do? By this shall all men know that we are his disciples by our what? Love one for another. How is our love? Do we show love to those that don't deserve it? Do we show love? Let me just say we didn't first deserve it. Do we show love to those that we're, not uncom- we're uncomfortable being around? You know, we were, we were reading in men's Bible study, unchristian. And the world knows Christianity and those that claim to be Christians more for what we're against than what we're for. And that's a sad reality. We have to know that we love them. And as I said a few weeks ago in a message, love doesn't necessarily condone actions. There's a lot of things that my kids do that I don't love, but I love them. There's a lot of people in this world that we don't condone what they do, but we still have to love them. Let this sink in for a minute. Do we show love? It's my, it's my neighbor's dog. <laughs> Go bring it back to him. My neighbor's hurt. He's under a load. Go remove the load. Do we willing, are we willing to extend an arm of love? Um, let me give you a couple of verses to chew on. Proverbs 24 and verse 17. Don't gloat when your enemy falls, and don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. <laughs> I knew he, I knew that I knew that decision was going to get him in trouble. I just knew that. That's gloating. Proverbs twenty five twenty one. Over just the page. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. I, I think that's a good way to show love. Uh, how about Matthew chapter five? I know Matt will get it up there before I get there. <laughs> Matthew five, forty-three. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Are we people who show love? Even to those who we think don't deserve it? Even when it's inconvenient, 
We live in a world full of people that are not like us. Would you agree? They're not like us. Can I ask this question? Why would you expect them to be like us? It's the world we live in. There's an unsaved world all around us. And they're not going to be like us until the love of Christ impacts their life. How do they see that? By our love one for another. That may be uncomfortable for some of us. To get out where the unsaved are. To be around them. To get to know them. Sometimes we in Christianity... I have a friend who was in a, on a mission trip this week all across Africa. And the two brothers that he was with criticized every Christian under the sun for the entire week that they were there. And I remember thinking, to my, and I remember asking him this the other day, if somebody is willing to criticize every Christian person they know, what does that say about the unsafe world? You can't even get along with your own brother. What, what about those outside? Folks, we've got to change our attitude here. And as he says here, going on in verse 10 and 11, first he says, don't give preferential treatment to the poor because they are poor. And just because they're poor doesn't mean that they're not guilty. But then he comes back and emphasizes them again in verse 10 and 11. Sow your land for six years and gather its produce, but during the seventh year you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated so that the poor among your people may eat from it and the wild animals may consume what they leave. And do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Once again, you're to help the poor. Let me ask this question. When's the last time you've helped someone that was poor? So, well, how do I do that? There are so many ways to do that. So I hope at a food kitchen, you can give out food. I would recommend not giving out money but going through an organization, going through a, a group that, that does this. There are ways that you can help through the church, obviously. There are lots of ways to do this. But here's one thing that I find out in a culture that we live in. We live without margin. Let me explain that. We have so many hours in a day, and we push right to the extent of it, don't we? We have so many dollars in a paycheck, and we push right up to the edge of it. We don't give ourselves any margin. We're okay as long as the car doesn't break down. We're okay as long as the water heater doesn't go out. We live with no margins. And as long as we continue to live with no margins, we will be inwardly focused. Does that make sense? But if you live your life with some margin and you see someone need, you can help. Because you've planned that. But I think he culminates this in verses 11, and 11 through 13. Listen to verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 12. Do your work for six days, but rest on the seventh, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well, and the foreign resident may be refreshed. Pay strict attention to everything I have said to you. You must not invoke the names of other gods. And here it is. They must not be heard on your lips. What's he saying here? Be focused on serving the one and only true God. Obey God. Obey Him. He's the most important one to obey. So if we can get some of these things down that we're given in the book of the covenant, all these things transpose into the New Testament. God still doesn't want us to lie. God still wants us to love our neighbors. He still wants us to show love. He still doesn't want us to take bribes. 
He still doesn't want us to kill the innocent and the, and the righteous. He still doesn't want us to keep company with liars so that we become like them. All these things that were in the book of the covenant are still seen in the New Testament. So the question I have is, how's my life defined? What is my reputation? What is my life in the world that I live in? Am I putting these things into practice? In the world that I live in, what am I known for? A friend of mine said a long time ago, if you have a reputation, it's for one reason. You've earned it. What are we known for? Are we known for our love or are we known for our selfishness? Are we known for doing whatever it takes to get things done or are we, are we known for working together with people to, to glorify God through it? What about our tongue, our reputation when it comes to speaking? That's a little bit more difficult sometimes. I know me. I know what I want to say sometimes in circumstances. Sometimes not the kindest things. But all of us, are we obeying God? Are we putting Him first? Are we practicing these things so that life around us would be better in the sight of God? Let's pray.